five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a lift. Hi, space enthusiasts. Daniel Bock and Istvan Lerns are the co-founders of Morpheus Space, an innovative electric propulsion company based in Germany and the US. I met them for the first time at IAC in 2019 when they won the pitch competition. And since then, they've done really well, including announcing a $28 million Series A last September. Please enjoy listening to them talk about their technology and their journey as space entrepreneurs. And with that, also welcome to our first episode in 2023. Happy New Year to all of you again, and we're looking forward to another great year full of interesting episodes. In case you missed it, the last episode of 2022, at the very end of December, was my preview of some of the exciting things that may happen in the space sector in 2023. Check it out. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I am an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help, expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. And we'll also put that link in the episode notes. And lastly, you can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Hey, space enthusiasts, welcome back to another episode of the space business podcast. And today we have another prominent new space startup, Morpheus Space. And I'm very happy to have both co-founders here today. Daniel Bach and Istvan Lorenz. Welcome, guys. Hi, Raphael. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for being on. So what we usually do as the first thing in these episodes is basically ask you for an elevator pitch of the company. So, um, Daniel, why don't you try to do that? Yeah, sure. So Morpheus Space, uh, in short, is providing uh, a full-stack in-space mobility solution. And what we mean with that is basically... Um, we are making in-space maneuvering uh, autonomous and scalable. And uh, we've created a whole ecosystem around uh, that topic, and that ranges from highly efficient uh, modular electric propulsion systems, so from hardware, over to an embedded software and autopilot that makes uh, maneuvers autonomously uh, operated, and a whole uh, software stack to um, also automatize operations of whole constellations, to also orchestrate uh, whole constellations to make them the very first time dynamic. So we are living in a, in a very dynamic world, and uh, our assets in space are quite static still, um, so we want to uh, challenge that. And we are offering uh, a bunch of uh, really innovative technical products, but we are also innovating uh, how we are doing business. So we see the challenges in space as a whole. And one is the economic reasons. And we are, uh, as far as we know, the first company that is uh, offering successfully hardware as a service 
and I think we'll touch that in, in a few minutes. So mm -hmm. we basically bill uh, what you use uh, uh, your assets for. So we are basically offering a solution that addresses uh, most of the bottlenecks in the industry and um, with the overall goal to make space safer, uh, more accessible and more affordable. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here, and we shall try mm -hmm. to address all of these points you mentioned. Um, let's maybe take a step back, uh, because I'm curious. So um, one thing I sometimes um, like to ask is is just about the name, Morpheus Space. And so Morpheus, so I think Matrix, but what what is the origin of the of the name? That's a great question, but it's also a manifold answer. So it was it's not just a single reason. One part is uh, definitely uh, because we are all the big fans of the Matrix. So that's uh, yep. the first thing. Uh, but we also got inspired by the Greek mythology, like uh, um, Matrix was also. So uh, Morpheus is the, the god of dreams in the, in the Greek mythology, also able to change its shape depending on on the dream. Basically, uh, Morpheus could could change its, its shape, and that's basically our overall vision. We want to create constellations um, that can uh, change their shape changing demands on, on Earth that we are creating something almost living uh, in, in a dream world. Let's maybe just spend a couple of minutes on the history of the companies. How did you guys sort of, you know, wake up or decide to do, okay, you know, there's um, space logistics and we don't think it's ideal and we want to we wanna try to improve that. How did that happen? Um, that's an interesting story. It, it did not happen according to a, a grand scheme or a big plan that, that we saw a problem. Mm. It, it emerged as an opportunity over time. So we first met during the end phase of our studies or master studies in Dresden, Germany. And during Daniel's studies, he worked on a propulsion system, an electric propulsion system that uh, utilizes FEEP, uh, field emission electric propulsion, it's called. And his focus was to miniaturize this uh, technology. And in, in that time, this was in 2011, before 2011, where, where, where he started his work and it culminated in, in a finished design in 2012, where he held his defense and presented his results. Funny enough, I, my first assignment as an employee of the university was to assess Daniel's work and, and be, be a judge of his uh, thesis. And during his defense, I immediately saw a, a big potential for mass producibility because it was such an elegant and simple design. Mm. However, it would have been a big bet because back then, CubeSats were just a curiosity. So nanosatellites were used only by academia and there was not really a business model, a business case for it. So, so roughly what year are we talking about there? This, this was in 2012. Okay. And, but we saw, we saw a trend in, in miniaturization and we saw that, that payloads and, and small satellites will have value in orbit. And we also saw that that commercial space has gotten a new momentum through the XPRIZE and, and all those things. Mm -hmm. All these little signals gave us a little nudge to keep this in our minds. And, and Daniel continued his research and development of this, this uh, thruster until 2018. He successfully could finalize the design, validate it, and uh, put it onto uh, two spacecraft, where mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the year, they were shut up into uh, orbit. And that's where we decided that this is the right time to uh, found a company. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So even in 2018, probably I'm trying to put myself in the position now back then, even then it probably would seem like sort of a ballsy bet, right? Because you probably had some people who would just would have just said like, why do we need propulsion? Like, you know, you, you go up there, you, you, go to your tar- <laughs> exactly. you, go tar- you go to your target orbit, maybe there's a bit of station keeping. Okay, maybe we de-orbit, maybe we just let it naturally decay. Other people who, you know, actually, as you're saying, probably a minority said, okay, you need propulsion. They're like, oh yeah, there's some established providers of, you know, basically traditional Hall effect thrusters. What made you guys feel confident that there was this this gap in the market? Our belief and, and our trust in in uh, the progress of humanity. There, there, there is no other way in a future line than a growing space industry. And that can only happen when you make technology efficient. And it was not efficient at all. Like building satellites over decades that cost billions of dollars, one piece is not something that I would call efficient, right? So yes. miniaturization is a logical next step. And that, that means that the volumes will increase. And that means that mass producibility is going to be a very, very important step. So we, we basically bet on, on this vision. And, and as you said so well, when we started, when we first got the space qualified stamp, basically, most of the players or, or the actors in the industry were either neutral about propulsion mm-hmm. or they were against it actually there there are we we have customers that were actively against actively outspoken against propulsion saying that it's a waste of money and resources to mm-hmm. to put it onto a small spacecraft because it it will deorbit anyways from the uh, leo in 30 years or whatever but we saw that it's it's impossible to maintain a constellation without having the ability to maneuver around and and we just said okay well we'll we'll talk in 2 years then we we'll, we'll, we know what we're doing and, you know, we just had to wait four years since then when uh, now the whole market has started to reach out back to us. The majority of our leads now are being generated by the influx of, of requests, not by our active outreach. So in, in inbound interest. Exactly. Okay, just, just playing devil's advocate here. So um, we had a very recent guest on the podcast. I'm just not going to call him out now, but I mean, it even generated some like small discussion on Twitter who said something along the lines of like, oh, most people putting on propulsion for collision avoidance it's more like PR than anything else. So I'm going to I'm going to assume you disagree with that and maybe you can kind of oh, talk strongly, about it. strongly. Yeah. So that person has no idea what the constellation operators actually are facing day the, in the, and the day person out. Is actually, that person is actually a constellation operator. Well then I don't know what he was thinking because I have seen the conjunction feed of a certain constellation operator. When when you have you know hundreds of satellites in orbit, uh, every day you're bombarded by warnings uh, on the order of magnitude between 10 and 100 that there is a po- potential collision that could happen within a few days. And it is every single time you see that you're throwing dice and you're playing game of chance. And what is also a fact is that the number of satellites is growing so that, mm. you know, playing the, that game of chance is just increasing in numbers and, and the chances of the collision in, uh, increase. So it's just a matter of time before uh, people will lose millions of dollars in assets and on top of that ruin uh, an environment where they will not be able to put satellites into that orbit for a long time. Yeah. So is it maybe for the benefit of our listeners? And of course, just a reminder of everybody, this is sort of like a non-technical podcast and, you know, people are supposed to not really know what's going on. But so you're talking about conjunctions. Conjunctions is basically when there's a risk of 
collision, right, between two objects um, in space. Can you maybe, um, because I assume you have a lot of data and you've looked at a lot of data, sort of ever so slightly try to quantify, like, let's say you have a Earth observation satellite in a polar orbit or something like that. I mean, how severe is that problem? Is it sort of like you face one potential collision a month, a week? a day is there any sort of so way you can i can it? i can give you rough order of uh, magnitude mm -hmm. numbers if you have a constellation of roughly 100 satellites uh, you will get uh, on the order of about between 1000 and 2000 uh, conjunction warnings per month right per now month. per month yeah okay but i guess the other question is then how good is that data is that data i mean how wide are the error bars so to say is that just something where the error bars are so wide that you just end up wasting money because most of the time it's actually a false positive or i mean how would you characterize that um most of the time you know the the collision doesn't happen luckily because which is good. it's yes. just which is good because it is because of the way that we measure objects in space the uncertainty around these objects is uh, can be quite high uh, especially when you project that position out a week into the future it, it becomes much worse but these things will improve and on top of that, right now we have, what, 5,000 satellite, active satellites in orbit, and who knows how many uh, debris pieces. And that number will uh, tenfold within a, a few years, right? So that means that the number of conjunctions, possible collisions, will also tenfold, or, or maybe even more because the uh, creation of debris is much higher than one individual satellite. So the number of debris... Uh, that is created because of one satellite is higher than one satellite. So one mm. satellite generates mm. more. Yeah. On the historical side, a lot of this, you know, data with like, you know, the increase of debris and satellites is very recent. Looking forward, we all expect the number to increase, but there's also uncertainty, right? How does that guys, or how does that leave you guys or the industry in general in terms of trying to do what, what I would call like propulsion modeling? You know, if you're a constellation operator and you have to think of, I don't know even what terms you're thinking of uh, in this. Is, is it like total delta V or something? How 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 should people think about their propulsion modeling and how how can people like you guys assist in that? Yeah, I I think one part is of course collision avoidance and that uh, is going to increase in the future. I think we can increase uh, agree on that uh, all of us. There's uncertainty, but it's just one use case. Mm. Um, and so how we how we are also putting it into perspective is actually our hardware as a service uh, model. So in our case, you don't have to uh, buy the whole system upfront uh, uh, with a lot of money. You basically uh, pay for for each maneuver. So for example, for a collision uh, avoidance maneuver, and that thing brings uh, things into perspective. So mm -hmm. do you do you really want to risk your satellite or pay just a, a really small amount of money to avoid that? And that makes it, I think, more tangible, uh, the risk and, and, and also the consequences. And it is just one, one element. So you can also change your operational orbit. Uh, a lot of satellites are launched with uh, cheap ride-share missions, for mm -hmm. example, and then the uh, operational orbit is uh, either below or, or above mm -hmm. that um, um, deploy orbit. What brings in more value, even more, which the industry doesn't completely see it as uh, as it uh, uh, was in the beginning that propulsion is actually uh, a, a good thing and a needed thing, is that we are um, working on solutions to modify whole constellations, the orbit, uh, continuously to um, really reflect what's happening on Earth. So if, if there are natural disasters, for example, to adapt your 
uh, constellation if it's Earth observation or if you want to address new markets with communication, for example, mm -hmm. and cover new, new continents or increase the bandwidth over new continents. We have now flexibility in your uh, operations and you don't need to wait uh, years to basically build new satellites, design them and launch them to space. You can act right now. Yeah, so I, I would I would like to add uh, to this that Daniel's point is the key here. It's not collision avoidance. Collision avoidance is basically an, an insurance policy, right? And insurance policy will never dictate business and uh, business trends. And and in that sense, when you talk about well, I'm putting propulsion on board my satellite because I want to avoid collisions. Yeah, it 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 might be an overkill. Right. However, you need to be able to react to the market. So if my competitor has propulsion systems on each satellite and mm -hmm. they, because of it, they can drop their image price by 10%, right? Then what do you do? How do you react? You have to react to that, right? And mm -hmm. that is the beauty of uh, a, a competitive market. Mm -hmm. And what we do is basically putting propulsion into the perspective of value generation, mm -hmm. right? We are not saying buy this propulsion system and then this is a maybe insurance policy to save a million dollar uh, CubeSat. Mm -hmm. No, we are mm -hmm. saying that put this onto your satellite and if you do a maneuver, we can calculate for you how mm -hmm. much value that maneuver generates and we take a piece of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. This is how we, how our pricing uh, philosophy is laid and, out. And that was my next question. So, sort of in the traditional model, you would just basically buy the propulsion system, right? So, let's say it's a small set, and you pay. I mean, whatever it is, um, you guys tell me it's like three hundred thousand dollars or something, or five hundred thousand dollars. You get a propulsion system, right? So, how does it work for you guys? Is there like sort of any upfront payment, or is it basically all sort of opex, like you pay when you use it? Okay, uh, I can take that. Um, so it's we have an upfront uh, cost, but it's more like a symbolic one, uh, so mm -hmm. that you're basically not ordering what you don't need. Um, so to get a, a little buy-in from the from the customer, uh, but the majority of the of the value is basically uh, so it's about uh, um, uh, 25x basically. Um, so. One twenty-fifth of the of the whole price is just the upfront cost. So it's comparable, like your your cell phone. You know, you buy yeah. it also for one euro for one dollar, um, but you you have a contract of using uh, the 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 phone for you know uh, surfing in the internet. Um, and that's the, the same uh, approach we are taking. Um, the majority of the of the value is basically and 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 the pricing is. Um, uh, OPEX. So when you need uh, the propulsion system, you're, you're paying for what you need. Yeah, and, and I would have. Um, you mentioned the cell phone. Um, I would have. I started thinking about sort of leasing a car, but like leasing a car, the down payment is usually like a lot more than one twenty fifth. But of course, the other um, difference with car companies is they have so much data they can go on, right? Um, to to model this out. I mean, you guys actually have. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like you guys have limited data, but you still feel comfortable. Yes, because we we um, we are not leasing a hardware piece this is not mm. our business model the that that's the superficial first reaction when people hear about mm. it but that's not what we're doing we are actually uh, making one unit of propellant that is utilized in orbit more valuable through a stack of software mm. right because uh, we realize that having onboard propulsion does not just 
magically solve all problems. It actually creates a lot of difficulties and challenges for the operator. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to just maneuver satellites. So on top of that, there are certain things that only we can do, like optimize a maneuver in a certain way or optimize an entire uh, constellation's uh, dynamic, right, that no one else would be able to do. And you would have to spend like a unit of uh, propellant in order to achieve any change in dynamics. But if you can, through our software, if you can spend half of that and achieve the same result in half of the time, then I generated extra value for the company. And for that, mm -hmm. I, can, I can ask for more money. So what happens is that our margins increase through software. Yeah. So it's, it's yes, the underlying thing is like leasing, but it actually enables us to generate more value for the customer. Okay. And this type of modeling, is that something you would go through with um, each Constellation customer on sort of a semi-personalized basis, or how would that look in, in practice? Everything we are doing is um, driven by scalability. So we are not doing anything uh, custom made or we yeah. are not having an army of astrodynamicists working mm -hmm. on on modeling a maneuver for for a satellite no we are creating tools that are applicable for every situation and the biggest tool that we are creating is something that the entire academia has never heard of which is uh, utilizing um, AI and and computational fluid dynamics in in orbit in order to uh, generate uh, uh, maneuver plans on the scale of entire constellations. So, and since this is such a novel concept, you know, I have to ask sort of on the commercial side, when you go out, talk to customers, I mean, because of course it sounds super cool intellectually, right? And technologically, when you go out, talk to customers, I mean, do they get that? Is there like a barrier for them to understand it? How do those conversations look? We just tell them the result of it. Nobody is interested in how a car works. If you press the acceleration, it should go forward. And if you turn the steering wheel, it should go, you know, sideways. Um, and that's what we we are telling the customer. So if if the customer wants to increase their bandwidth over Africa and drop their bandwidth over the Atlantic where they have no customers, then we can enable that. If there is a sudden war uh, breaking out in, you know, middle of Europe uh, and there is not enough revisit for photos, then we can improve that. And they understand this and they understand the value of this because otherwise they would have to shoot up new satellites and there you go. That's the value that we generate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I realize now we didn't really, um, we should spend a few minutes at least sort of on the technology side. I mean, you you mentioned FEEP before, but again, it's like a non-technical podcast. People, of course, don't know what FEEP is. Um, I think people may roughly know what electrical versus chemical propulsion is, but if you don't mind, if one of you can spend like a few minutes sort of like just laying out the propulsion landscape and where you guys fit in there. Yeah, sure. So um, maybe let's start with the uh, separation of chemical and, and electrical propulsion. So what typically you're associating with propulsion is rockets like big a fire stream coming out of the uh, of the a rocket. Mm -hmm. um, so that's not what we are doing. Um, we are so the difference is uh, chemical propulsion. Uh, the energy is basically stored within the propellant, and you have a chemical reaction that burns up and then uh, propels uh, the rocket, for example. Uh, electric propulsion is you have uh, an inert uh, medium, and you are basically. Um, um, splitting up the charges, so either you're creating a plasma 
or um, or yeah, single charged uh, um, particles, uh, mostly ions. Mm -hmm. And the, you have different technologies, different physical uh, um, uh, phenomena that you are basically using in different kind of technologies. So you can do that, uh, creating that plasma with microwaves or uh, or um, 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 other uh, electromagnetic waves. Um, you can uh, um, also create charged particles. Uh, by pure electrical fields, that's what you're doing. So um, FEEP is basically um, a technology where you have a, a metal as propellant. So mm -hmm. we have a proprietary uh, alloy that is super heavy. So metal is uh, super dense. It's uh, easy to store. So in um, non-operational state, it's it's a solid block of metal. Mm -hmm. uh, we we liquefy it. Uh, so it's a low melting metal. So we don't need much energy. So it's a, then a liquid metal and we are applying a high voltage uh, um, field uh, on, on that metal. And that metal is basically flowing on uh, very sharp needle tips. So we're using the um, the uh, yeah edge effect um, to increase the electrical field in, in, in the needle tips. And uh, by that very strong field, um, actually quantum uh, mechanics also come into play. So mm -hmm. um, we um, create out of that liquid metal uh, pure met met metallic ions. So we are basically splitting up the uh, the atom into a positive charge and the electron and we uh, mm -hmm. be accelerating that uh, positive charge charged metal ion out of the propulsion system and in, in just one uh, one shoot so um we in short creating based on a metal metallic propellant an ion beam uh, of metallic uh, uh, ions and that doesn't create much thrust it's really uh, on the uh, mm -hmm. lower end but it is extremely propellant and power efficient mm -hmm. so we we need only really small amounts of of metal operate the whole system from many years non-stop and that's basically the game changer so you don't mm -hmm. need much propellant uh, um, only a little of, of power and you can propel um, your spacecraft uh, for a very long time and that comes in, in into quite handy for us because we are uh, facilitating maneuverability and and also uh, dynamics new dynamics in the constellation operations and so it's like it's typical. It sounds typical for electrical propulsion, sort of like lower thrust, but very high. What we call what you call efficiency, basically specific impulse. Um, yes. But it's still it's still enough thrust, so you can execute the um, at least the the um, the avoidance maneuvers where you have enough advance warning. I guess right. It's uh, it's funny how uh, little uh, difference it it makes in in when it comes to collision avoidance because mm. you have to nudge your satellite just a tiny little bit. Mm. Uh, if you have a chemical propulsion system that can generate like real, uh, mm. you know, punches uh, for your satellite, uh, you have to perform the maneuver, uh, you know, hours ahead of the event. And with our system, you have to perform it like um, twice as long ahead. Like mm. it's not a big impact. And, and uh, operators like to perform a maneuver about three days before the event. Already, so okay. uh, that's where they feel comfortable, um, and so it it does not make it doesn't make any difference uh, at the end of the day. Um, a very cool way, however, what I would like to add is that no one, no other propulsion system can say that our propulsion system is um, quantum tunneling enabled ion beam propulsion. <laughs> Okay, that, that Actually, we should make, cool. we should make a T-shirt out of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, have to come up, you have to come up with some really cool acronym, you know, and then, and, and and use that. Okay, and so um, 
As I understand it, um, it's basically a very modular system, right? So you can use it, I guess, on a wide range of uh, of size factors of satellites. Exactly, that's that's the whole idea behind the uh, propulsion system uh, that Ishan slightly touched. So we really focused on the scalability, uh, also on the hardware level. Um, so our goal was to design the smallest unit, the most efficient smallest unit, and then scale it up in production again. So similar like with uh, battery cells or solar cells um, that brings down costs, production costs, and you can adapt your product uh, even if it's not custom made, but if you um, make it in, in concrete uh, product uh, uh, packages, basically you can address a very broad range of satellite sizes. And that starts from really CubeSats below one kilogram, so even smaller than one unit CubeSat, and goes up to the really uh, multi-hundred kilograms up to a ton uh, of satellite mass uh, with that technology. Of course, then with multiple of these units, um, but the same product. And that is also really uh, great for our customers because um, maybe you've seen that also, that trend. Um, um, especially new space companies don't stick with a, a certain satellite bus forever. Mm -hmm. uh, they're e either increasing the satellite size or decreasing it and mm -hmm. uh, adjusting it to their payload and their, to their mission. And once they have already um, uh, a technology integrated, uh, they don't want to change that. And we, we are growing uh, with our customers, no matter how big the satellite is. Um, once they had our product before, it's not a, a big thing to uh, also put uh, a few more modules on the satellite if, if the satellite gets better, bigger. And you were saying before, I think at least a couple of times, that this is all also designed to be very scalable in production, which then I guess would translate into sort of, you know, a, a good cost or price to the end customer. Because, I mean, one thing that that I always ask as a, obviously, a naive non-expert is, you know, I remember like the first time I started looking at propulsion systems and the prices, I was like, why are these things so expensive? And I guess it probably has to do with lack of scale, but... I guess you guys are aiming to be cheaper than what's currently out there in the mainstream, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, so uh, scalability uh, in the production is, I think, key for the whole industry, not only for uh, propulsion systems uh, that starts, that, that that's also for applicable for other subsystems or the satellites themselves. Um, so um, we really want to bring in uh, always Atmorpheus new perspectives, um, and we can learn so much from other industries. And uh, one one thing we did in, in, in summer is basically we hired a, a CEO um, that comes from from the automotive industry. Um, mm. Even even if we even we have had a, a design that is uh, meant to be scalable. Uh, uh, scaling all the processes um, and with the experience from the automotive industry in the in the production side uh, was extremely valuable. And uh, yeah, uh, Martin uh, spent, I think, or uh, was 27 years at Mercedes-Benz and was running mm -hmm. there the production. Um, so we are really benefiting from that. And we are trying to do that, uh, um, yeah, different perspectives from different um, uh, industries learning learning uh, there um, in multiple ways. So the hardware as a service model was, for example, also inspired by the uh, cell phone uh, um, contracts and also uh, by the mm -hmm. aviation. So um, the motors or the engines for uh, planes are actually also uh, um, built by the usage of it. So they are not uh, bought from the um, um, airplane builder um, upfront traditionally, but they are basically um, built uh, 
for how many hours uh, they are basically running in the airplane. Mm -hmm. And is there any sort of, um, let's say, it, um, I mean, this, this model sounds very nice, and I agree this is something we would need in, in space in general, right? That stuff is scalable, because, I mean, historically, it seems we've, we've just done many components in very low unit numbers, and hence they were very uneconomical. <laughs> Is there any sort of constraints or challenges you see? I mean, for example, the supply chain for a product like yours, is that relatively secure and easy to configure? Or um, The bottleneck in the yes. industry, uh, that's, a, that's a big topic that we are addressing uh, actively because we are not seeing anyone else uh, being mm. active about it. So um, everyone is focused on you know, the launch segment and, and focused on the rockets as being the, the primary bottleneck, but uh, that is being solved. Mm -hmm. um, soonish, right? Agreed. So the, that bottleneck is being released, and the, the the bottleneck then slips down the chain onto production. So when you ask what what is the next uh, hurdle, it is the people actually in the industry. So yes. everybody is everybody who is now running a space company, a small space company. I'm not talking about the big primes; they, they mm -hmm. put them out. Um, I'm talking about new space. Uh, they are using the the projections for the launch capacity right and they use that to project their own business success however they most of them don't really lean into that they they don't realize that well if if i'm using that those projections that a hundred thousand satellites are going to be launched within a decade I actually have to build thousands of my widgets, whatever I'm building, mm -hmm. you know, circuit boards or AOCS systems or sensors, mm -hmm. whatever. Wheels, yeah, thousands, whatever. yes, mm -hmm. thousands. That means that that those are orders of magnitude higher than what uh, the the average space industry player is used to. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to scale production, and most important, they don't know how to scale business. How the hell would a company with like 20, 30 people and one salesperson handle a hundred clients. It's impossible, mm -hmm. right? Through emails and Salesforce and whatever. No, it does not work like that. You have to create processes that can handle that throughput and have a, a, a capacity large enough for a huge industry, right? And that is not happening. That is what we are trying to show everyone that this is how you need to act. You have to, if you use those projections, if you project your own success based on those, mm -hmm. then lean into that and, mm -hmm. and really start uh, implementing scalable solutions. Mm -hmm. And that's what we are also trying to share with the industry. Mm -hmm. And I think that sort of is a segue also in, I mean, we've, we've been talking mostly about your sort of core propulsion product, but you have a whole sort of like other products now, right? Um, which the way I see it, they all seem to be aimed at helping other people to scale their operations and make them more efficient. So do you want to maybe like just spend a few minutes on what those products are and what they do for your customers? Um, the ecosystem grew out of the market's needs. First, we started off with um, we, need, we need to scale our initial education and outreach to the customer. So every customer that we reached out to, the first question was, well, can you do this maneuver? Or mm. this is how my satellite looks like, and this is what I would like to do with it. Can you do something and show me that you can do it, right? So that, that means basically you have to do preliminary simulations for mm -hmm. uh, orbital maneuvers. And we, we saw that, oh, well, we can, we can put that in a web app, right? So we created that. Uh, and then we saw, well, there are certain things around that, that are attached to this, this need that we also need to uh, 
put into the web app in order to make it uh, scalable. So there, there, there needs to be a, a, a way for, for their whole team to collaborate, to modify the, the satellite uh, design and the, the mission needs and so on and so forth. Then we needed to integrate you know, the NDA process, and we needed to integrate, um, you know, basically creating a self-serve web application for sales. And then we saw, well, hmm, if they can order the, the widget that we create, right, then they should be able to manage it also, because we already have all the data. So let's just continue the process mm -hmm. until uh, the end of mission. And then we realized, huh, we can actually tie production into that. You know, our um, ERP system can be tied into that, yeah. and and then we can provide even more uh, value to the customer. They can they can follow the the production process, uh, live updates of of uh, lead times can be provided, and so on and so forth, which is which is unheard of in the industry. Uh, it's like you know ordering a pizza, and you can see how the pizza is being created uh, yeah. and then delivered. So that that that's basically the the expectation of the of the new generation, and we are just trying to adhere to that expectation uh, in user experience. And on top of that, then we created the, the, the value-added uh, features where since we already have the propulsion system that is operational in orbit, we can add buttons in that web app that actually do something with the propulsion system. So we can add a button that performs a collision avoidance. Right? Yeah. Uh, we don't really know how to do collision avoidance because you have to know everything about space. That is a totally different business model. So then we reached out to Kehan and said, well, would you be interested in integrating your, your services yeah. into our web app and, and create a button for it? And that's what we are doing. Well, let's talk about Kehan in a minute because I, I know and love the Kehan guys. Um, so I think this is a very interesting sort of case study. But I mean, these are a lot of things you're trying to do, right? It's like you're trying to solve a lot of current issues in the... Um, in the space sector and bless you guys for that. But is that also not a bit intimidating? Because I mean, that's, I mean, you guys have enough bandwidth sort of management wise to go after all of these um, issues and how, I, I mean, I realize they're all synergistic, but still like how you guys as entrepreneurs, how are you guys thinking about this and like what to prioritize? That's always, I think, a, a tricky question as an entrepreneur. So you shouldn't lose focus in general. Um, but actually I, I see it uh, a little bit different. Um, so there are many space companies uh, that, uh, try to expand their business vertically. So they, they build a startup building some widget, some subsystem, then they're starting to build satellites or tugs or whatever, or rockets. And it's not really in their field of expertise. So I think it's even a, a bigger stretch to um, um, vertically integrate uh, your business than um, focus on what we are really good at, which is uh, propulsion and uh, orbital uh, astro astrodynamics, basically. and horizontal uh, horizontally integrate that within the um, space industry it, it it sounds like a lot if you're offering a lot but it's all uh, strongly connected with each other and we have the expertise in within the team already so it's not a far stretch um, on the operational side of course time differences are are always a pain so Ishwan is based in LA um, I'm mostly in, mm. in Europe so that uh, brings uh, some complexity to it um but we we like uh challenges and i think we are not spread uh, too thin yet understood and besides besides this question of well uh, do we have the focus uh, or or the bandwidth um i i would like to rephrase that question um what do other companies do for the entirety of the industry in order to make it grow faster 
and achieve those numbers. So what we are seeing, is what, how we look at the industry and the projected numbers is that, well, those are projections and those are dreams, right? So what can we actually do in order to have an impact on the entirety of the industry? Because at the end of the day, if we have an impact or anyone else has an impact that next year there's going to be 50% more satellites launched, then that's good for us because our target mm-hmm. uh, addressable marketing, right? So our motivation is at the top level and we want to reach the top level. And that's how you reach the top level when you focus on, on the most important aspects of the industry. Understood. So let's just talk a minute about your partnership with Kehan. And so Kehan for our listeners, well, actually there is a previous episode um, with the Kehan guys. So listeners can go back and listen to that. Um, but Kaon is basically a company that's, um, you know, giving things like conjunction warnings. Um, so doing space situational awareness. Do you just want to quickly describe how you guys are working together with Kehan and providing value to your customers? It's very simple. It it sounds like, you know, when we announced our partnership, everybody, everybody was like, wow, that's so innovative and whatnot. It is not. It is just a logical next step to integrate collision avoidance into a mobility ecosystem. Um, we can we can make it sound super complicated and I can like uh, talk hours and hours about the details of it. But at the end of the day, they provide a service for the most optimal thrust vector that would achieve avoiding a potential collision in the future. And we provide the means to execute that thrust vector. So we just merge those two mm-hmm. into a button on our web app. So when the customer presses that button, so we, we also get their, uh, we are funneling also their uh, uh, alerts. So the customer can see that, oh, this specific satellite might collide with another satellite in seven days. Do you want to do something about it? You click on it, you see the relevant data, and then you can make a decision whether or not you want to act on it. If you mm. press the, the button, then you get that thrust vector. That thrust vector also is attached to a total delta V that is uh, uh, that we can use to convert that into dollar amounts. And then the customer can decide where, do I pay that 200 bucks to save my $5 million satellite or not? You know, Do I want to gamble or not? And, and suddenly we put proportion into perspective of value savings or value generation. Mm. And uh, it's, it's, that, it's that simple. Obviously, in the back end and, you know, technical, uh, like merging technologies is not easy, but uh, from the user experience and the UI, quite straightforward. So as we are coming uh, closer to the end here, um, let me ask you guys, what's your vision? Where do you see, where, where would you ideally like to see Morpheus in whatever the right time frame is? Five years, 10 years? So we want to see Morpheus as a backbone for uh, in-space mobility. Um, so basically um, providing the infrastructure in the back end uh, for the industry uh, to not care anymore about the uh, nitty little details of uh, astrodynamics and how to execute a maneuver, how to operate your, your constellation. Um, and with that approach, we really want to increase the addressable market. We want to get w- away from this exclusive uh, circle of uh, space uh, experts using space. We really want to make space a commodity and open it up to other industries um, even more um, so that it's basically just a back end for the industry, a backbone 
And uh, if we achieve that, I think we, we are very happy. Yeah, I would like to add uh, that we will never stop asking ourselves at the end of every day, what did I do today to help the growth of the space industry? And that creates our backbone as a business and a collective of wonderful people. And so let me ask you the two questions we we usually ask at the end, and I guess one ties into that vision already. So if you guys weren't doing Morpheus, but you guys, of course, are living and breathing space, and it's clear you're passionate about space, um, is there something else you'd find really interesting to do in the space sector? Um, yeah, a lot of things. <laughs> so um, that, that's a great thing about space. It's, uh, you know, there's uh, no limit for uh, being creative. Um, I think if I think about the bottlenecks besides the ones that we are uh, trying to solve with Morpheus, uh, next big bottleneck is energy in space. Um, so, um, um, yeah, having uh, alternative energy sources uh, like fusion or so, that's a little bit more mm -hmm. far out in the future. Um, and uh, more, more, um, yeah, not so far in the future, I would say um, uh, getting data um, processing and, and uh, data centers basically into space and create mm -hmm. that, that infrastructure um, that can deal with the growth of the industry near to Earth, but also, uh, um, yeah, um, looking a little bit further out to the moon and, and other, other planets or, or planets, yeah. Uh, that would be something I, I would be really interested in, but uh, Ishwan maybe has uh, some other takes here. Uh, for me, it's uh, very straightforward. I come out of academia, and one of my um, inherent talents is to see what is broken. And I can tell you that all of academia is broken. Um, about in certain fields, mm. I can tell you in biotechnology in the US, 85% of the resources allocated towards academic research is wasted. So the result is mm. not a null, it's not a positive, it is mm -hmm. um, bad work that has zero value. Mm -hmm. That comes out of out of a very very old uh, out of out of date system that needs to be brought into the new generation. And I've spent a significant amount of time to figure out how to solve that problem and how to revolutionize all of academia. It's just uh, a, a huge beast with with a lot of um, let's just say dogma and and people not wanting to change it for obvious reason. So the only way I could tackle that problem is with uh, a, a critical mass. Mm. And um, I, that's, that's what I would do if I would not want to change, you know, the space industry. I would somehow still want to help humanity. And just, just imagine just improving uh, that number of 80, 85% down to 60%, like improving 20%, what would that mean yeah. to the advancement of humanity? It would be, it would be huge. And, and that's what I, I, I feel passionate I, besides space. Yeah, I can, I can totally, I mean, and, and that really transcends space. I mean, that's a lot of, like you mentioned, bio, uh, biotech, that's a lot of disciplines. Um, it's interesting, it ties a little bit into, and, and listeners can listen to, there's an episode relatively recent with um, Avi Loeb, the astrophysicist from Harvard, and he also quite severely, let's, let's say he quite severely criticizes the way academics currently works and that it's probably suboptimal <laughs> but um let me ask the final question we always ask for for both of you guys which is about science fiction we already mentioned the matrix but <laughs> beyond the matrix uh favorite favorite science fiction anything films movie uh, sorry movies tv shows books 
Um, I really like uh, sci-fi that is not that accurate and that technical, so that is inspirational and, and really um, um, makes you think is, is quite deep. Um, so I think Matrix is, is covering that, but there are also others, and maybe also uh, with some uh, fantasy uh, touch in there. Uh, so I'm a big fan of, of Inception, for example, or or that mm. uh, mm -hmm. has uh, time travel uh, uh, series. I think Dark was the name. Um, mm. And I can also recommend the, the new uh, Netflix series, uh, The Sandman, uh, because uh, the, the main character is Morpheus, and I think it's a great, great <laughs> mix of um, yeah fantasy and um, and mythology and so I like that kind of um, stuff but Ishwan uh, has I think also quite a strong uh, sci-fi uh, uh, yeah take on it yeah I'm I'm a big sci-fi nerd um, I could I could uh, talk about you know works of art in 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 this genre for days however nothing will ever beat the work of uh, Asimov and the the series that has been uh, created uh, foundation mm. is such a beautiful homage to his work it is absolutely you know not what he created but it it is a, a work of uh, uh, art that that comes out of a place of passion and love for for his work and i would um if if anyone listens to this and and didn't see that that show go and 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 watch that because it's 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 just Beauty. Yeah, Foundation, absolute classic. I would say also, like, if people have the time to read the books, read the books. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, that should be. The... <laughs> the series is pretty well done. It's uh, it's it's obviously not following the books exactly, but it's it's. I think it was nicely done. But but yeah, it's a very interesting concept of also the um, the concept of psychohistory that we can mathematically predict yeah. the future, which um, definitely seems to be beyond my mathematical ability, given how world history is going at the moment. But it's a nice concept. But I, I love I love that that uh, he he intuitively saw that the further out you project, the more accurate you become, and I yeah. I, I really mm. love that insight. Yes, this is true. But Israel Daniel, thank you so much for being on. Um, Morpheus is a really interesting company. Love love what you guys are doing, and and again, it's not just propulsion; it's it's much broader than this. So thank you for all your efforts in the space sector. I you know hope we can accompany you for many years, maybe even decades to come together in the space sector, and then maybe we'll talk again in a few years. So. Thank you and all the best to you guys. Thank you so much, Rafael, for having us. Pleasure to talk to you and see you soon. Yeah, that was fun. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. Once more, if you enjoyed this, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platforms such as Apple or Spotify. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. You can support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an interesting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. See you for the next episode.